Hello, and welcome to the Switchboard podcast. Switchboard is a one-stop resource hub for refugee service providers in the United States. With the support of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, Switchboard offers resources, learning opportunities, research, and technical assistance on resettlement-related topics. My name is Kay Ballore, and I'm a subject matter expert working with Switchboard to host this podcast series on the topic of leading during a transition. I've had the privilege of working for almost 40 years overseas in the United States on refugee issues, so I'm really glad to be able to engage um, with today's refugee leaders. So this podcast series will consider the topic of leadership during transition. So we know that strategic and everyday leadership is critical to any organization, but confronting change as a leader can require new and different approaches and possibly more emphasis on some basic elements of leadership. Nonprofits working in the refugee resettlement sector have experienced profound levels of change and transition over the last four years. And as we look ahead to this year, we know that the sector will continue to face change. Of course, managing organizations through the COVID pandemic presented leaders with unprecedented challenges. And managing all of these significant changes during a time of renewed questioning of how well we deal with inclusion has added yet another level of need for focused and nimble leadership. Different sectors in refugee resettlement had transition challenges that were unique to their circumstances. So we will speak with leaders from three areas, from the national, the state, and the local levels. We hope to present a spectrum of views that we know all of us can learn from. Today, I'm very happy that I'm being joined by Hans von der Beard. Hans is the Vice President for Resettlement, Asylum, and Integration at the International Rescue Committee and the Interim Senior Vice President for IRC Europe. Hans and I have actually known each other for quite some time, and I just, I'm just i really thrilled that, that he's joining us today because I've been able to, to see his leadership at work at the IRC and also in, in the broader refugee community. So Hans began his career in the humanitarian field in 2002 at ZOA Refugee Care, where he was a program director for Afghanistan. Hans built his leadership, management, and motivational skills with a decade of experience in global finance and logistics, working for various multinational companies. He holds a Master's of Science in Public Health from the London School of Hygiene and Medicine and a Master of Science in European Studies from the University of Amsterdam. So welcome, Hans. So glad that you're here with us. Hi, Kate. I'm delighted to be here as well. Let me ask you your first question. Can you talk about the toughest leadership challenge that you've faced over the last several years? I think the toughest challenges that an organization like uh, IRC and its leaders have faced really had to do with the fact that we, for the past four years, had to work with a very hostile administration whose sole agenda seemed to be uh, keeping refugees and immigrants out of the country and, and destroying the refugee resettlement program as we know it. The impact that that had on refugee communities, uh, but also the impact that it had on uh, on the refugee resettlement staff and the network overall, I think has been a, an unprecedented challenge and uh, and really caused us a lot of, of, of headache. But I would also say that the discussions about about diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, that happened after the George uh, Floyd murder, and that really, um, I think, also exposed 
how much diversity, equity, and inclusion questions and, uh, and racial equity is also a problem of our sector and our organizations. I would definitely, um, you know, add that as a major uh, a challenge for resettlement organizations. And the difference between these two, right, for me also being that, say, um, in the case of the hostile Trump administration, it was really an external problem that we were, uh, you know, confronted with and that we had to respond to. But in the case of uh, a DEI, we also had to confront the fact that, say, we were ourselves part uh, of the of the problem, and that that definitely, you know, created a whole different set of challenges. Yeah. Well, and just to to follow on that, what do you think best prepared you to lead during this challenge, and 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 how intentional would you say you were? Well, yes, I I would say. You know, experience, of course, is always uh, good to have. And in in my life, I have worked in very different circumstances. You alluded to my, you know, life in the corporate world. But I I would definitely say in my humanitarian career, I've worked under very difficult circumstances. I've worked in active uh, war zones, etc. And so working working under stress and under a lot of pressure was not new. Secondly, I think you know it for me has been always very helpful. To have a a real plan, you know, that is based on your, you know, best understanding of of the situation, and where where you then basically act on the basis of that plan and try to respond in an organized manner, so that the situation never becomes overwhelming. So that's that's my second sort of like you know uh, experience in in leading through challenges like this. Thirdly, and and some sometimes you know people forget, but it is also really important to take care of yourself. Um, because if you are tired and fatigued and you basically don't take care of yourself, and that's for everyone, you know, of course, different, but it it definitely is going to impact your ability to see what is happening. It's definitely impacting your ability to take uh, to take decisions. So I would say experience, a plan, and good self care, I think, is definitely uh, is definitely important. Yeah. yeah. So it's actually quite a list. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I think uh no, that's really helpful and I and I particularly the one about taking care of yourself um I think resonates because there were just so many things that were coming at us um during these these last few years um and so often it's hard to remember to put that oxygen mask on first, right? So I think you've covered some of this, but, you know, I'll give you one other just opportunity. I mean, I think, you know, you listed some really great strategies and and sort of intentional ways that helped you lead. But if you think about day to day or even more broadly, what what would have gotten in the way um, for you? You know, what was a time when, you know, you just found yourself kind of challenged, right, um, to to take any of these intentional steps. Um, and what what helped? If you could talk a little bit about that, that'd be great. So I think what has, you know, in, in the initial phase, what sometimes, you know, gets in the way is that you realizing that you have more information than others in the organization. And as a result, underestimates the anxiety level that people in the organization feel. And really, you know, that leading to the realization also that it is really critical for leaders to uh, to communicate, to communicate a lot and to be as transparent as possible, uh, you know, in your communication. My experience with uh, at the IRC is, is that our staff 
was not you know desperate to hear clear-cut solutions they were just desperate to hear in what kind of situation are we in mm. and we're very accepting and very forgiving for you know leadership not always knowing exactly you know what to do next or um uh, what the future would hold um in six months from now and being uh, open about that and acknowledging uh, that while at the same time also you know telling people you have a plan because you know you can't of course you know leave that completely in the middle but uh, but i have found open and transparent communication um like a like a real important component in this uh, in this response as well and to lead people appreciate that yeah yeah i think you raise a really good point about leadership at different levels and how you know you talk about underestimating the anxiety and i think sometimes we even underestimate as you then pointed out people's ability to deal with the gray areas I think we assume people want the black and white, but in fact, people understand they're surrounded by the gray area. And so having that, that constant communication and transparency to me is, is critical. So thank you for that. So I touched on the, the pandemic and of course the IRC is, is a world leader in providing health services. And I know that that's important to the IRC in the United States. Um, so if you could talk about challenges, but, but also opportunities, um, if you, know, you saw those during the, the pandemic and was there anything about it? I mean, I, I know we all got used to working remote and then of course that might've led you to think differently about your leadership. So maybe, maybe speak about that. Um, and then you know, we work with refugees and so refugees, um, you know, are a diverse population and many refugees, uh, um, they represent communities of color. Talk a little bit about how that impacted, you know, how the IRC and how you as a leader in the IRC, you know, had to, to deal with that. In, in the COVID impact on our clients and our programs, uh, IRC has really been led by our uh, by our officers and by our frontline staff, who immediately sort of like realized the enormous impact that say COVID had on our clients in terms of their ability to access services that were you know on lockdown or on remote, that were you know incredibly impacted uh, in terms of their ability to to work. Uh, many of our um, of our families actually had family members who lost that, who lost their jobs, yeah. um, and so there was immediately you know an economic impact on it. The fact that families themselves in a new country all of a sudden were together in their apartment uh, in the same way that we were all um, uh, locked down, I think also had a major impact on mm. people's ability to integrate but also people's ability to live together. We, we all have experienced, you know, tensions in our own family. Uh, we've seen that, of course, uh, with refugee families as well. And so, but then it was also really our frontline staff that came up with um, uh, all these creative ideas on how we could still uh, uh, provide services, how we could promote um, employment uh, training, um, uh, how we could create, you know, financial support programs that would allow people to, you know, continue to stay and live in their apartment or, um, you know, have the necessary cash to do uh, groceries, etc. 
So, so I, you know, in, in that situation, when it comes to our program response, we've been really led, led by our uh, frontline staff. And as leaders, right, it was more for us, you know, a matter of facilitating, you know, the great ideas that were, uh, that were, and that was a real inspiring um, uh, thing to see despite uh, the circumstances. And now more recently, our teams have become very much involved uh, making sure that the refugee and immigrant communities also have equitable access to uh, testing and to the vaccine distribution. So IRC teams are working with local partner organizations uh, in making sure that people have access to tests um, and have access to vaccines as well. And that's a very, very, very important component of our um, of our work right now. Now, of course, right, because of this, uh, I think many families have had a really hard time, like many, like many American families. But we have also seen some strange positive uh, results as well. Unexpected, I would say. I wouldn't use the word strange. But, for example, because we offer certain uh, services on remote, we've all of a sudden seen that people are actually using more uh, uh, services than they uh, than they did before, and this was in particular true for some trainings that we did for um, for refugee women. And I think several of our teams have indicated that um, they actually have discovered through COVID that some programs uh, and some services actually can be delivered on remote. And in fact, it may be beneficial for both uh, the resettlement agency and the, the the clients. So there are definitely some. Uh, some some very interesting learnings uh, from this period, and, and if anything, you know, it has reinforced also the real crucial importance of um, refugee and immigrant communities having digital access um, as well. Because without digital access, um, it would have been impossible to um, to provide uh, services or to access services for for clients. Let me say also one or two things about um, uh, the impact on our staff. And you alluded to it, Kay. I mean, working on remote has been really challenging, you know, making sure that that people have access to the right technology, that people have adequate workspaces, young families, you know, having to deal with, you know, their work obligations, but also childcare obligations. Has proven to be uh, to be very very challenging, and you've also really discovered, right? Like some colleagues really thrive in an in-person environment where they engage with people, whereas other people thrive um, quietly in their room and delivering one product after another. And so, as a leader, you also really need to know, you know, uh, who are my team members and what do they need uh, to still be able to uh, to deliver and and for some that is a you know a regular virtual coffee um, for other it is just you know clear expectations about you know what they have to deliver when and then uh, and then they will deliver it as an organization we have um, you know made a lot of measures available to people so that they have the right setup at home but also we have introduced flexible work hours so that people can basically deliver their work uh, when they uh, when they want to uh, when they want to do it i would say overall we've been really able to manage um, our work uh, despite being on remote but i think that many of us are also looking forward 
to the time that we can actually be back in an office again, uh, if not uh, five days a week, you know, more days than, uh, than, than, than what we have right now. I really like that because I think an assumption might have been that by being remote and away from people, somehow you you would learn less about them. And when in fact, I think we've we've all learned more about each other uh, in a way that maybe we wouldn't have thought possible. So you started to talk about uh, digital equity. And the next question really had to do um, with the, the question of equity. And I think you raise a really important point about the challenge that so many of, of um, new Americans would face. And we've seen it in other communities in the United States, how inequity around, um, around access to Wi-Fi and, and, and all of that. Um, so that, that certainly is one, one challenge that, that you touched on. And um, to me, the other side of that, that I found really interesting about what you said had to do with the increased uptake of programming. So talking about women in particular being able to maybe participate in a way um, virtually that they might not have been able to, to do otherwise. And I think that's kind of an exciting possibility and, and opportunity in this. And so, um, and I think it leads to this question about how we how we really do include the voices of those we serve in the programs that that we provide, and and interesting how having a remote access to it might in fact increase that that voice. So, if you could just speak a little bit on on successes around including refugee voices, and maybe more broadly on the issue which you've touched on off and on here of equity and inclusion in relation to, to the communities that we work with, that would be great. Yeah, it is really a very um, a, a challenging area. And I think an area where IRC, but I think uh, the resettlement community as a whole has a lot to improve on. I think, and 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 let me uh, forgive me if I start a little bit sort of like from uh, from the starting point, like what happened after the George Floyd murder, and when there was a real demand for social justice in the country, um, a legitimate demand, but where that demand quickly also you know extended to the institutions uh, as well, including organizations like ours, and where staff within the IRC were making very legitimate demands about, well, what about uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion um, at the IRC? How diverse are we? Who has access to uh, to power? What do our resettlement programs contribute to an anti-racist social justice approach in the United States? We are resettling people in a, in a society that is fundamentally unjust. To what extent do our programs uh, consi- consider that, and yeah. I think IRC has to confront its own uh, uh, limitations as a, um, uh, a and really how it can contribute to, you know, to, to becoming to becoming an anti-racist uh, organization that uh, that contributes to, you know, social justice, and but that also, I mean, in the in the framework of resettlement programming really prepares clients and, and, and help them integrate into a society that is unjust. And, um, 
And in order to do that right, I mean, we have to make sure that our leadership is more uh, diverse and also reflects the communities that we work in. But it also means that, say, our clients need to have a much bigger voice in uh, the design of our programs, uh, in the evaluation of our of our programs. And and so I think it is too soon uh, to talk about our successes in that uh, in that field. I think we are we are right in the middle of figuring out, you know, how to how to realize that uh, change. Uh, it is part and parcel of our multi-year strategy, um, and we are now basically planning out what a what a DEI strategy looks like in our engagement with partners, in our engagement with uh, with clients, and um, and internally also, you know, what the organization needs to look like to to get there. Those are very necessary uh, uh, plans, very necessary discussions, you know, and where as I mean, and I'm now speaking very personally as a leader, right, where you have to listen, uh, where you have to learn uh, and at the same time sort of like, you know, make sure that the change that rightfully is demanded also is is happening. So I am very confident that say uh, that this is an irreversible uh, change. And I think, um, yeah, we as an organization really want to be accountable also for uh, for what that what that would look like. And uh, and I hope that say other organizations, some organizations are much, I think, you know, further evolved in that area. But I think there are lots of organizations that are in the in our sector in particular that are in the same uh, boat. And I I just hope as that as a sector also we are able to um, um, to 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 make these necessary. Uh, changes. Thank you for that. I think this is something that that we could spend a lot of time on because I think you're absolutely right. There's there's still a lot that needs to be done in this sector, even as as people are grappling with it and and moving ahead. Um, so in the time that we have left, I just have a couple of more questions. Um, we're gonna change directions a little bit, even though we're talking about resettlement um, sort of implicitly in all this, we haven't actually touched specifically on um, expectations around the US Refugee Admissions Program in 2021. Of course, we've seen the, the new, uh, the revised report to Congress um, and, and I, I the new presidential determination, and there are lots of opportunities in there. Um, but of course, as positive as this development is, it too represents yet another pretty significant change, right? Another significant transition. So as the national and, and local sort of uh, levels ramp up, um, maybe if you could talk about opportunities around transforming the refugee admissions program, after two years or more than that of very low arrivals. Um, and you did touch on engaging refugee voices around transforming uh, the admissions program, but, but touch on, on how you see even just the next 18 months and particularly around that, that hope for result that we all talk so much about in saying, let's not just have the same resettlement program. You know, Is there a way that we can uh, build back better, if you will? So let me start by saying that I'm incredibly optimistic about the program and about the future of the program. I think um, with this administration that I think, you know, is not only very competent in terms of, you know, being able to uh, to do what it says it's going to do, but also in terms of the values 
I think really represents what was the long-standing tradition of welcome uh, in this country. And I think when Secretary Blinken spoke when he was nominated for his role, I think he couldn't have made it clearer, you know, how he spoke about his own refugee background. So I'm incredibly optimistic, both in terms of, you know, the competence, as well as I think the value set of this administration. That optimism was reinforced when I read the executive order that the president uh, assigned and where he not only announced his intention to increase the number, but also announced his intention to uh, introduce a number of uh, improvements to the resettlement program, you know, making it much easier for people to uh, to come and really doing away with a lot of the, the barriers that that the Trump administration had imposed by by looking at new categories of refugees that could come in by introducing a community sponsorship uh, component in the program and really yeah taking a new fresh approach to the program that i think is very necessary and that you know i know irc but most of the other resettlement agencies also wholeheartedly endorse so that's on the administration side i am also very optimistic because if if we've learned one thing from the past four years is that there is an incredible, you know, community support uh, for this program. There are really very engaged communities that uh, that have resettled refugees, that want to resettle more refugees, and that were basically sort of like the last, you know, line of defense uh, against the, the efforts of the previous administration to, to curtail the program. And I think that energy and, and those community you know, organizations, many of them driven also by refugees or former refugees, I think are going to be a real, uh, a real help in, uh, in scaling up the program and, and building the community connections that we need uh, to go from, what is it, 15,000 uh, in the last year of the previous administration to uh, 125,000 next year. Now, does it mean that I think, you know, we won't run into any uh, difficulties? Um, I think there are still, you know, some obstacles. I mean, there are, you know, obstacles in the government because they need to undo some of the uh, the changes that the Trump administration made, which is going to take time. Um, uh, we don't exactly know, you know, how quickly and how rapidly we will get the COVID pandemic under control. It's still impacting people's ability to uh, to travel, uh, and it's impacting the ability also to screen more and new refugees to uh, come to the United States. So, yeah, I think um, I think that there there are still also some factors that say you know may mean that we don't go to 125,000 immediately uh, next year. But I am very positive that say you know in the next couple of years um, we are going to uh, to get there for sure. I agree. I mean, we did, I'm known known for my optimism, um, but for for the first time in a while, I feel like uh, that I've, I've got reason to be optimistic. And we do know that that there's just that 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 need has not abated, um, you know, during these last few years. And so it is. Um, I think the opportunities really are there. So with that. We will wrap up this podcast episode. I really want to thank you, Hans, um, for all of your insights, um, for all of the work that that you and the IRC and, and your partners have done uh, shouldering kind of this enormous um, enormous challenge of uh, transition and the pandemic. And, and you're right, the national reckoning around race. There's just so, 
so much. And um, so really, thank you for, for sharing uh, with us today. And you can visit Switchboard online at www.switchboardta.org. And you'll find additional online resources, e-learning, uh, a form to request technical assistance, and much more. And if you haven't done um, this already, please do sign up for our newsletter, the Switchboard newsletter, um, so that you can be notified as new resources come online. So thanks again, everybody. And thank you again, Hans. Thank you, Kay. It was a pleasure.